0: Hello, friends and listeners. Below the line, at least today's episode, is brought to you by a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every morning and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking too much coffee day to day. And it is the single most important part of my morning ritual to do more and stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, stress management, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, etc. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter promo code BTL for below the line to get 15% off and try it for yourself. I also wanted to tell you about MetaLab. You probably didn't know it at the time, but MetaLab has been the secret sauce behind products used by billions of people around the world, with a B, billions. They've been creating apps and products for over a decade with startups like Slack and Coinbase, as well as industry leaders like Google and Uber, and I have been recommending them to friends and founders of companies for years, way before starting this podcast. From delightful design to world-class engineering and everything in between, MetaLab works with teams of all sizes to sweat the details and build products that your users will love. I am a massive, massive fan of MetaLab. They are one of the only agencies that I consistently recommend and have been since my friends at Coinbase used them maybe six years ago and loved working with them. There are a lot of agencies out there, but if you're like me and obsessed with pixel perfect products that people love to use, you've got to talk to MetaLab. Check them out at metalab.co, that is M-E-T-A-L-A-B.co, metalab.co, and when you get in touch, let them know that James sent you. And if you dig below the line, we'd love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts, so every review matters. And if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, especially all the five-star ones we've gotten, know that we appreciate and read every single one. It only takes two or three seconds, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is another deep dive. It's one in the world of startup PR. My guest today is Ed Zitron. Ed was a journalist, then a PR professional within a firm, then started his own firm, Easy PR. And we got to know each other about nine years ago when he helped me navigate the strange foray into startup PR with my company at the time, Tilt. He was helpful then, and he's even more helpful now with another decade of experience under his belt. And this is an episode on a topic that is on so many creators' minds, so many founders, so many early employees' minds. But it's something that was a black box for me for many years. Of how do you navigate this world of, of PR and have others help amplify a message that you're trying to bring to the world with your product or your company? We touch on everything that PR is good for, everything that it is not good for, what you can expect to get out of it, what is actually, well, unrealistic to expect to get out of it. Talk about prices that you might pay for a great PR firm, the ranges that you might see. We talk about tactics that help you get press without a PR firm, for the many founders out there that can't afford one or aren't at the right stage to bring one on, but are still trying to get press for their product or company. We also talk about crisis management, something that I had never heard a PR professional break down as, as simply as Ed did for, for me in this episode. It was great to hear insight into something as gnarly and really disorienting as ha- having, a, having a way to manage through a crisis, a PR crisis, and do it with a level head as a founder, as a creator. Like I said, startup PR, is a it's a topic that is on many people's minds and it is something that I knew took me a few years to really understand, wish I had a episode like this with someone like Ed that broke it down so simply. So without further ado, I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. And I said without further ado, but there's one more ado, and that is about 40 minutes in, my technical equipment on my side, we're still just wrapping our head around the remote A podcast interview, uh, equipment side of things. And about 40 minutes in, my microphone starts to fail. Luckily, we had a backup mic that picked up the audio from my side, but it gets a little bit grainy about 40 minutes in. And uh, my apologies to every listener for that, about 40 minutes in. But we thought it was still good enough for us to release the episode. And the insights on Ed's side are, they're great and uh, the auto audio quality is great there so now without further ado let's get into it with ed zitron this is below the line all right friends and listeners today we've got ed zitron on the program welcome ed Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for, for coming on the podcast. We've known each other for about eight years, yeah. maybe maybe nine years. So we've known each other for a while. But uh, when I was researching who to have on the podcast for a deep dive on PR, a mutual friend of ours, uh, well, actually, I, I imagine it is because of the, the way that uh, he described you, but a friend of mine that that um, writes for TechCrunch said, Ed Zitron is the last great PR professional. So uh, high praise from, from uh, a TechCrunch writer that I respect, admire a lot. Um, and I'll tell you offline who who it was, but uh, I imagine they'd be okay with me sharing that. But thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. I haven't done an episode on a deep dive on PR before, but what I'm really excited about with, with you as the guest today is... Not only have we known each other for for almost a decade, but more than that, you were a great PR professional for us with my last company, Tilt. And then also you've written two books on the topic, one for PR professionals jumping and wading into this new this new world that they might be entering from the, the PR professional side. And then you also wrote one for founders and creators to read because, well, let's face it, most of us are our own PR professionals people for the first few years with any venture. So I'm really excited for today's conversation. Thank you for joining.
1: Of course. And yeah, it's interesting because I know I need to update probably both of those books, which is just the way of the world. And I, I'm sure by the time I I update them, they'll already be out of date because right now we're in a very interesting time where while at the same, while things aren't the same, there are Different ways of looking at everything. The importance of certain things oscillates. Sometimes you will talk, for example, and so public relations as a whole, the way you describe it would be how you relate to the public, interestingly enough. And what that means is creating the image that you hope to be portrayed in by the public or portrayed as by the public when they see you or hear you. What this can mean is internal messaging that you hope that they read and then they think the right thing. It isn't mind control. There is a hilarious thing about subliminal images and all that, and that that's quite literally fake science, just does not exist. But for the most part, PR is preparing yourself for speaking to the public through other people. So that might be pitching reporters, might be talking to the reporters, it might be doing conferences, it might be doing webinars, it might be doing social media, but increasingly, I see social media management as a separate thing. I do not believe that it should be the domain of PR people anymore. Just because doing double time as a PR person and a social media person, you're going to do one of them poorly or both of them poorly. I don't mean that as a qualitative thing. I don't mean the person is bad or they're untalented. It's just to do each of those properly is a separate discipline. One might make you good at the other, but I'd argue just to do them right, you really need to dedicate. And I think that modern PR has become... It's interesting at the moment watching it because it still remains as it was when I started in two thousand eight. Pitching reporters, getting them to write about stuff, it has become harder to do that because of a number of different things. Most obvious being that there were years of there was years and years of very positive, effusive press around tech as a whole, and then Prism happened, which kind of knocked it. And then Cambridge Analytica. What's Prism? Prism being the Basically, I believe it was the NSA had backdoor deals with Verizon, Google, Facebook, and a bunch of other people. Basically, giant illegal wiretaps. And that story went away quite quickly. Like, you'd think that that would have stuck around. But Cambridge Analytica and Theranos, I'd argue, really ended that party. And that's very tech-centric. But when we're talking about productized PR, the... yeah. Well, and bo- before we get into the yes, the sorry, modern and what it, the, no 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 no, no
0: I I think I think we're going to spend a lot of time on the modern state of PR and well shit what what is modern because it also changed as you as you said you wrote the books recently and yet uh, in the last few years and yet yeah we find ourselves in in twenty twenty and you know in a COVID world that is changing things massively again but. Before we get into the now in you know PR public relations relating to the public what did it look like 50 years ago 20 years ago you mentioned to me before that you know like 5 years before you started in 2008 that people were still sending faxes as a primary means of communication to
1: to journalists
0: exactly I mean that's that's like 2003, 2004.
1: Primary primary is maybe the, the wrong. I, I don't mean this. Today. Okay, it's not just, primary. It's but. not necessarily the primary, but I had a manager way back when. She was very good at her job, but she insisted on faxing TV reporters. She believed that that was the way you get through to them. It was not, but it must have worked before. But from what my understanding of what old PR, so before I would say social media and before email was super, super prevalent. So we're talking like, pre-911, I would argue, is a, is a fair goalpost, maybe a little after, was you had a lot more phone calls and it, from what I understand, was a little more pally because it was smaller. It wasn't as easy to start a PR agency. You actually had to go and meet people physically. You had to have drinks or call people. And because there were less PR people, because it was so much harder to just do a PR agency, if you think about the cost of starting a PR agency these days... Zoom account, Gmail account, that's it. you got your own cell phone, I assume. Back then, you actually had to have an office, and the expectation was an office. Clients expected to come into an office. And that that was really the case. But there was still an understanding that there was a separation from press and PR people. But if you go way back when, and you see shades of this today, there's a book called The Powers That Be by David Halberstam, I believe, that went into the... think it was the 20s 30s 40s that basically cbs in particular was a funnel for the president i mean still cnn or what have you or fox will be a funnel for the president or at least they'll cover everything he says but it used to be they'd have congenial direct conversations around exactly what was going to be said on exactly everything and if you think about the age of media the BBC, I think, it was at least within... I'm going to give myself a 20-year thing. I think it was the 40s through the 60s it started. I can't remember. That's another TV book I read in college. But when that started, the BBC was originally created as borderline Christian. It was meant to be teaching good history and good faith. So PR eventually grew after TV became and radio became and media became a little less. Just, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say un, like, biased. It was more around the function of media changed from A, strictly reporting everything they saw to they realized that there was a degree of interference with it and the media grew a knowledge of that interference and realized that the government wasn't always perfect or at least realized they could say that without getting run over. We have the freedom of the press and we always have theoretically, but that doesn't mean the press has always taken the most advantage of it. And that change, yes, it changed. And yes, I'm not going to speak for PR people who are twice or three times my age, but from my understanding, there was something that happened in like the 80s or 90s where productization really grew, and there was the beginning of the tech reporter, the first tech reporters, the first product reporters who just kind of reported, and there was an excitement around technology, and it was. I forget the quote, I'm going to horribly paraphrase, but it was like, you can't tell a difference. The best science is indistingu- indistinguishable from magic, I think it is. And there was that kind of approach. And then even in the 90s and 2000s, you still had incredibly well-paid tech reporters. And yes, they were critics. And I would say around the 90s, you started getting a lot more cynicism while well, that started in the 80s. That cynicism grew into what we now consider modern criticism. And you saw that coming through in tech. But Frankly, tech was effusively positive through like 2014. I would say that was that was really that I'm giving the world's most condensed history here. No,
0: this is super helpful. I think, it, and it's a great framing for the rest of the conversation. And you started in 2008, so you and before that, you were a, a journalist yourself. I
1: used to get in so much trouble i used to i used to review games <laughs> yeah, let's honestly. take a quick yeah break break from the history to tell me more about that well i was the games in uh, games industry reporter and my perspective was always i'm reviewing a game that someone might spend 40 50 pounds on back in england and i used to get in so much trouble because i'd review that i'd be i'd be harsh i'd never be personally offensive but I'd say this is bad don't buy it and it might be a triple a title and there might be a publisher who's got advertising in the magazine. who would find that out. And they'd get very pissed off and they call my editor. And then I'd be marched in front of the editor. And the editor would say, why'd you say it was bad? I said, because it is. And then that would continue. There is something to be said for the time at which I left the games industry. Because now the games industry, the games industry now is 50% what I always dreamed it to be, where like criticism was consumer first. That, hey, I'm going to review this and tell you if it's good so you can spend your money or not spend it. Then there was the 50% horrifying harassment and treatment of games reporting and weird politicization of it, which I'm glad I didn't go into. But yeah, I used to get in a lot of trouble for being very critical because I just, but then I'd give a high score to something they thought would be bad and then I'd get in trouble for that too. And there's weird kind of expected coloring within the lines. And that will always happen in any any editorial setting, even today. But it happened a lot more back then because, weirdly enough, consumers expected certain reviews to be certain ways. They expected certain things. They weren't... I wouldn't say consumers were expecting what they expected, but they didn't want to see coloring too far out the lines because... I don't know. I never actually really understood why. But I thankfully, this. I never got any hate mail. Or if I
0: dated, with I, you know, I can I can kind of empathize with, you know, if, if I'm anticipating a movie coming out, I really want the reviews to be good just yeah, out of the definitely. selfishness of I've already been anticipating for a while. I really want. You know, I am have this demand for for going to see a great movie, and I really hope this is good. It's such a letdown when you have uh, you know a favorite director or or star come out with a movie that sucks because you're know, like, well, shit. I was kind of looking forward to that for yeah, like exactly. three, four, five months.
1: And especially with the PR hype cycle that works with movies and games and everything, where they build up for for months, if not years, and then when it finally comes out, if it's bad, the air's let out of your sales and. But it's less like that now, but you still get these insane protective groups of games or TV or media. If you don't like something, or if you do like something, you're bad. Like I there's this weird group of p there's two very separate camps of people who like the Avengers movies too much, or those who don't like it enough, or it's very strange. <laughs> right? And that that leaves the realm of PR and that just goes into fandom. That does
0: seem like a very protected property like every single movie that comes out is so well reviewed and maybe it's because they're great or maybe there's some type of of protection happening in the it's definitely yeah well when you mentioned the tech euphoria and this this episode will obviously uh, center around tech but what was what drove that tech euphoria in 09 2010 11 12 uh like it did feel like it was very positive and it was kind of like tech is coming is coming to save the day of a maybe it was just the background of a really shitty uh financial crisis and you obviously didn't want to place a whole lot of faith or uh or optimism around the the stalwart you know companies that that drove the economy in the previous century um maybe it was that but what drove that that uh, pretty amazing euphoria around tech that, yeah, it was it was so different than, than what we all see today?
1: And I say this with no criticism of any tech reporter who's listening. I'm not talking about you. Definitely not. So depending on the reporter, it could have been a number of things. I'll, I'll start with the ones that I've seen. There was a degree of some reporting, and this is across the board. This is not just a tech thing where they believed it was the duty of letting, the, letting certain startups have a certain amount of spotlight. Like they believed they were important and thus they would be covered. This is a double-edged sword because it is also correct. If you believe as a reporter that something is important, you should report it. That is an obvious one. However, the other side of that, and I'm part of this world, so I, I can't really judge it, is there used to be a far more matey thing of my mate is doing this so i'll do my mate a favor and there is still a degree of that to this day but there was especially with early tech blogs there was a degree of king making there was i think some people saw how walt mossberg had given apple and was literally referred to as a kingmaker, and they were like i can do that for startups i don't think any of that was malevolent i don't think a single part of that was i think there was a genuine excitement and they believe that things that came through Y Combinator were always going to be good. And frankly, YC does a lot of great things. Like, I, I'm not even criticizing YC. It's just everyone has bias. It's impossible to be truly objective. Same way it's impossible to be truly altruistic. It's just you're a human being. You are fallible. I believe that excitement. They believed that startups were going to truly change the world. And also, many, 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 many tech reporters were people who were independently interested in tech. And suddenly, tech, the thing that had been niche, now wasn't. Now, everyone was interested in it. And so there was this excitement of tech is now mainstream. And look at all the cool things tech is doing. One of the most egregious examples, Theranos, I believe most of that coverage came out of a good heart. I think people wanted to believe that blood, like the way that blood is taken could be changed. It could be transformative. And it had this backing. It had these incredible people. And I think people wanted
0: to believe it was, uh, you know, a young founder. Exactly. Could upend...
1: An old monolithic system. Someone who didn't finish college. A woman. Like, there Mm were so many things that... And frankly, also, I challenge most people to be able to do the research necessary to prove that Theranos was actually bunk. But getting back to the larger story, I believe that there is that excitement about tech going mainstream. And honestly, I don't know if, in many of these cases, anyone knew that people would mislead to that scale. I think the misleading that was done, if we think of like color, path, clinkle, all of these, like the famous ones that went wrong and were clearly bunk. And most people, if you think that Andreessen Horowitz is backing something, if something gets $39 million, the natural belief was, yeah, that must be real, right? They wouldn't just put Right, the experts in have
0: vetted it. Exactly. Or just the consumers. The experts have vetted it. There must be something there. And
1: with Facebook, it was, wow, we have this, Uh, we have this kind of awkward, dorky guy who has come up with this idea. And yeah, there's been some bumps along the way. And now he has this multi-billion dollar company. Now it's so big. And frankly, there are a lot of people doing favors for mates who work for the agency in question and Facebook itself. They wanted Facebook to win. I don't mean that in a malevolent corporate way. I mean, they were rooting for them, which is a human thing to do. I haven't thought too much about this, but I think
0: in that... That window, you did have this the old guard kind of fucked up the world with the financial crisis and you have this social network, which w- the movie comes out and and kind of uh, it brings the story to a mainstream audience in a way that just probably no tech story had been told it was uh, at that point. It's cool. Yeah, it, was, it made startups look sleek, cool. I remember when I saw it and it was uh, it was surely this see behind the veil wow that those people don't look so different than me they're young they are upending the you know the media landscape though building a i mean it's obviously a 100 billion dollar ipo in 2012 certainly um, you know turned this the, this optimism towards towards tech as well and maybe it's also because there was this pent up you know 8 9 10 year desertion of covering tech positively because of the the tech bubble.
1: But there was a societal thing. makes me think of talking to a friend about Uncut Gems the other day. Great movie. If you haven't seen it. He was talking to me about it, and I was like, I wasn't anxious during it. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I lived in New York. I think it's 2011. I think the cynicism towards tech, sure, Theranos didn't help. Sure, Facebook's BS didn't help. But I think it was the years-long hangover after... The initial Obama four years, we were all and referring to uncut gems in this case, there was just a thin layer of depression over everyone because we'd all left the financial crisis. We are finally out of it, and we were getting to a point where we're like, oh, we're not going to get Medicare for all, are we? We're not gonna get oh, oh no, and just the depression kept back in and a deep cynicism started to breed and then years after that, there's just bad news after bad news, after bad news. And then we get this, these really gruesome things happening across the world, and then tech start the cracks start to form, and a cynicism grows towards capitalism as a whole, understandably. And suddenly we're in this world where, hey, maybe our tech gods aren't so godly. And it's funny because I, I always laugh about how much easier my job was like 2014, 15, 16, or even 17 when there was still a thin layer of hope that cynicism existed, but you could get through it by being honest, by talking about what faults there might be, what problems there might be, getting ahead of a story. But it definitely felt like something was turning. And then, I mean, was John Carabroo? I'm saying his name wrong. The Theranos story, I think, really ripped the mask off of a lot of things, of how we view VCs, do VCs always? Well, even though historically VCs have to, by default, pick some losers. I don't mean bad people. I mean just things that do not sell for a bunch of money.
0: And to put it bluntly, though, none of the winning VCs did back Theranos, but it still was yeah, yeah it still, still was a but still a, it was a, a lot of money, an indicator of the yeah uh, of the larger technology uh, realm.
1: And I think that finally, the Cambridge Analytica thing really that that was when. You saw some reporters who had perhaps too effusively backed Facebook covering every damp fart Facebook made they covered. And suddenly that buddy-buddy nature they built up with them was gone. It was really gone. And that cynicism and that, oh God, we might mess up again, spread across all of PR. Which is like, fine, because I've always tried to avoid clients that I think would be giant frauds, but also tried to avoid clients that I think are just not substantive. But you've seen it in the – because the thing I've not mentioned is 2014, 15, 16, 17, it really ended. You also had the Indiegogo Kickstarter boom. And that also did an undercurrent – well, created an undercurrent of cynicism because you had a lot of catastrophic crowdfunding failures. And that industry right, – it, kind of, I, I, it, it was almost a little bit like retail
0: investors getting fleeced in the first dot-com bust. Yes. is retail consumers buying a $300 gadget that never gets delivered and they're to like, what release the fuck it. Is, this?
1: Which is Which is, and I used to get, and I remember being too proud of myself uh, for getting out of Indiegogo about 2015. I did a few here and there, but I used to have like 40% of my business in it. And I just was sitting there thinking, this feels bad. Overleveraging in any way is bad, but in particular, this feels like, something could go wrong. And then it did, and I was thankfully out of it. But I'm no you genius. You mean
0: with clients, clients running Indiegogo campaigns? Uh,
1: yes. I, so, sorry, I should have explained that. This would be clients coming to me with projects for, I'm launching Bungus Inc. on Indiegogo. Each Trungus will be $200. Pitch this to the press. And I got away from that. And then the same cycle happened again with crypto. When that, was it 2017, that big run happened? And a lot of people lost a lot of money. And the story that was being told was that the average person was making millions when it was actually all the weirdos who did it in 2014 made a shit ton of money. But for the most part, people getting in when it was getting hot with the press did not make a single diamond, in fact, lost out kind of like it was the 90s when you had the day trading and now what you're seeing with Robinhood and that a lot of people, a lot of tech people covered crypto effusively and then bang, it went right back down. And you know what? The overarching theme here is not the tech makes mistakes. I believe it's tech reporting and any reporter's responsibility to cover what's hot at that moment. Yes, there will be, it's impossible to convey the grand mystery of everything. And I admire any reporter who is able to take on a new subject and not completely bollocks it up, which is the great majority of them. And it's actually so admirable to be able to do this and not just screw it up. And they even avoided one of the greatest ones. One thing I've been very impressed with with tech reporting is the relative critiques they've been making of electric car companies because they could have very easily fallen into that trap and they didn't. Right. No one bought bought Let Echo's story or like the nine different companies that I made a joke on Twitter earlier today to date this episode about how every year there's nine different. Electric car companies that start and go bankrupt because the CEO embezzled money. But there's at least three who are like that. But tech's been very good with it. And I would argue that learning from the mistakes, and I don't even want to call it a mistake. Learning from the the the, the mistakes of history, one might call it, and knowing what questions to ask, I believe reporting will ultimately get smarter for it. For these bruises. I think reporting as a whole is stronger. I realize that's barely about PR at this point, but it is just fascinating to
0: me. No, it's well, it is a, a state of uh, just. At least it's a a lens on the the current state of of press and, and PR. What is when you say the bruises? Do you feel like PRs uh, or press is is getting some bruises right now of their own? You know, in July 2020.
1: I think that there is a. There things are always changing, like that is the blunt, like that is the bluntest way of putting it. Of course, things are always changing. I think that majority reporting, so the big networks are still learning what social media is and what it does. I also think that reporters are trying to learn a way to cover this stuff, and I think that the bruises that are being had today are the growth of disinformation reporters and kind of Gen Z reporting. I think that. The bruise is being learned there. What do, you, the, what do you mean by what do you mean by both of those? So, disinformation reporting, for example. There are some very good people in it, like Ben Collins from NBC. Fantastic bloke. Really good writer. There is an alarming growth of reporters who well, are not him who are chasing every 4chan lead. So, like, 4chan, an anonymous board made up of some of the worst people alive, are like, oh, well, 4chan is saying that blah blah, or these people are doing doo-doo, and reporting on disinformation. Disinformation. And it might be, and there's a vast difference between reporting on, for example, Facebook had a campaign they did where it was like uh, pictures of people in groups, helping people in groups, posting people being helpful. And it turned out that Facebook made up all those groups. That's good. Like that's disinformation reporting. But reporting that Gen Zers have... Left large carts of e-commerce, bought like left abandoned carts on Trump e-commerce stores to cause trouble with Trump. What that gets back to, and this applies to also just reporting on any Gen Z trend. So three teenagers are referring to food mood, which is just being hungry, something like that. It's very difficult with any growing nascent industry, be it disinformation. So basically, any group trying to lead the public and or the media in the wrong direction and any new groups, so Gen is in this case, it's difficult to divine what is important and what is interesting. Because those are sometimes the same thing, sometimes not. So people on TikTok doing something like that, there was a lot of reporters talking about a big argument between a group of streamers, or someone had sex with someone's girlfriend or whatever. And I saw actual reporting on it. I'm like, this has no public good. This does not teach the public. If this was in a gossip magazine, fine but not a major reporting out there. Leaving abandoned parts for the Trump campaign from TikTok users, if tens of thousands of people are doing that, fine. If 15 or 100 people are, that's not. like they're, And I think that being empathetic with this, how do you judge that? Who judges what's important other than your gut? And so the bruises, and I've been very critical here, but what I'm really getting at is there. everyone is still learning to cover these things and the things keep changing really fast. And it's brutal. I cannot imagine being a reporter right now. It's just absolutely stunningly. It's just stunningly difficult. This is super fascinating. So I want to. I want to
0: pursue this further. When you say that it is a brutally hard job right now, you wouldn't want to do it. What goes through your mind? Because I. I could try to assume a few things, but but I imagine there's just a much more vivid vision going through your mind when you say that is a brutal job right now.
1: Well, if you think about it, if you're covering politics at the moment, I can't imagine the – well, if you post anything political and it goes viral, you are immediately mobbed by people agreeing with you and attempting to workshop what you say, people scolding you because of a word, or people divining meaning from what you said in a different way. If you were trying to cover disinformation, for example. How do you divine? because this information is a problem, it is genuinely bad, how do you define, define or divine what is important and what is interesting? Because sometimes the boring stuff is incredibly important, but it's hard to make that interesting for a reader and to report on it in such a way that it disseminates. How do you view what is actually the place where something disseminates from? And when you get something wrong, which will happen, how do you walk that back? How do you make sure you don't do something wrong? That alone is challenging. And I think that, especially in any new industry, it isn't just like Gen Zs or whatever. It's any new industry, brand new industry. How do you, especially if you're excited about it, how do you separate your excitement from your objectivity? But the ultimate core thing is being a reporter right now opens you up to the criticism of a an increasingly polarized and angry crowd that will protect people on and protect but or we'll just harass people at, on a whim and it's really difficult but ultimately even if you took that crowd out with any new thing you were covering going back to the tech thing but with this information which i keep banging on about how do you like what is important how do you know something's important by the time something's come, become important how do you not get scooped on it how do you not know some 4chan user is literally making something up to mess with you QAnon, I think, is something they've covered really well because people let it sit for a while. They didn't immediately jump on Q and be like, this is real. But now you've got really nuanced, careful reporting. I can't imagine doing that job because how do you you separate someone who is just a bit weird and deranged from someone who may actually do something bad? And ultimately, even if you go up to the, what I call lighter stuff, when you're just covering tech and startups... How do you make sure, going back to what I said before, how do you make sure the company exists? How do you make sure that the company is a real company? How do you make sure that they can actually do the things that they claim to do? It's a level of due diligence that I myself try and do with my clients as best I can, but I am just one man and I only know so much. And the same goes for every reporter. How do they know? How do they know this? And then it gets even more nuanced and even more brutal when you're a minority. I want to ask for a company name, but have you worked with a client
0: that had just just bunk? Overleverage, yeah, over-leveraged messaging and, and
1: uh, technology that just never even got close. It's been a while, thankfully. There was one company I had that was like a Indiegogo project, and it was like a Keurig for nutrition stuff, and it set on fire during a journalist demo. And that was not good. The journalist neglected to cover it for some reason. I you had want a, your sales on fire, not uh, oh yeah, not your product not on fire. Fire is generally a good say. I had a drone company I worked for a while ago. This is not a recent one that I worked for that I literally worked for. And they fired me like three days after their incredibly successful crowdfunding campaign. And then a few months later, the dis- no, like a year later, the district attorney investigated them. Because they misled everyone, mm-hmm.
0: I think I might know. That yeah, you one.
1: might know that one, and it was all the crux of it was this video that I saw, and I was like, "Wow, that video is super convincing because it looked real. It mm-hmm. looked really it's good." The, yeah, if it's uh, the one I, you think, it's the one you Okay, of. so yeah,
0: that i a massive drone uh, campaign, and uh, since there's a client, won't won't mention, but yeah, that the video did look amazing. But, also, um, but I
1: should add, I pushed that client to, and they did in-person demos. It wasn't like, because my, uh, ironically, my big worry was that their company was complete bunk, but then they did the demo and the demo did the thing it did. And I was like, and then like the district, did, and I never got, thankfully, I never got, I immediately called my lawyer, but he was like, there's nothing, you're not. He's like, they would have contacted you before you found about it in the press. Come on. It trains you better than this. Other than that, though, for the most part, yeah, I, I am lucky enough that I've not really been part of anything that was complete doo-doo. I don't know if it's luck or a combination of just reading or just following my gut. But, yeah, it's it's difficult. It, it's difficult. But And you know what? It's not like I'm turning down business because it's bunk either. It's not like I get people doing this. Back then, I kind of did. Like Back in like 14, 15, 16, you did get people who would claim they were doing stuff, and it would be like the same kind of 3D rendered thing. You'd be like, that is not real. Yeah, that's a really... It's a, it's a really good point that um,
0: you make of... 10 years ago, in 2010, you did have to be pretty damn vetted to bring on a, a PR professional to start messaging your, your company. And then the era of, of pre-commerce blows up and Tilt was, uh, we powered a lot of crowdfunding in enterprise crowdfunding campaigns. And, and we were right on the, the, uh, the front row of seeing companies that didn't have anything. Some of them didn't have anything, but maybe a budget for a video. Uh, but certainly, I mean, Indiegogo and it basically became Sky Mall Magazine of of just pieces of of shit that was, um, that was you know just sold, peddled on the 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 platform left and right. And I bought some of it, and one of which never got delivered. So I am right in that camp with you of of just a promise that never happens. But that was it was this it was the sheer number of of quote unquote startup promises. But, you know, 2010 version of a startup would be you you go through very, very sophisticated conversations with investors to get investment, at least uh, to be able to get coverage in in a mainstream news outlet. And then you fast forward in 2015 and it's literally just off of um, a video in this potential of the future and and a crowdfunding campaign you could get written about in The New York Times and then. Yeah, the bottom starts to fall out in, in 2015, 2016, 2017, when these companies go years and years without a delivery. I hadn't really thought about that as being a a major part of this just consumer sentiment souring. I, I want to ask about uh, this last part, and then we're going to jump. I, sw- I swear, listeners, we will get into uh, um, the the actual deep dive on, on PR for, for tech founders. But the last part is how much of it is consumer driven, where the consumers Wanted that euphoria
1: in 2011, oh, 2012, 2013. Absolutely, consumer driven.
0: And well, and what about now? And how much six, seven, eight years later? It's consumer driven of wanting to not see this this person become a uh, billionaire from an idea in the dorm room.
1: I actually still think that consume. I don't think consumers quite as much want to see the the rich guy get richer anymore. I don't think people want that kind of hero anymore. They definitely don't Like, the, the worm has turned against like white guys and white guys getting rich, it, which is a good thing for society. Now, I say the worm in this case, I mean consumer sentiment. I do not mean the incredible bias of the VC industry and all that good stuff. But, I mean, consumers don't need those heroes. I do believe consumers still love good products. And I do believe there are companies that do this. I think that there is definitely a cynicism, but not necessarily toward products. But also, there are far less BS products for because the bottom fell out of Indiegogo, and consumers know what bullshit looks like now.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, to your point of
1: the bruises on every side, everyone is is more informed, and I think the consumers are sympathetic as well to the plight I was talking about of the tech the tech reporters. It's not like the tech reporters deliberately misled anyone. It was simply that they, they believed and they went off of a mixture of what they had been told and their gut. And sometimes you make difficult calls and you want to believe it and consumers want to believe it. And that's why with every one of these big stories, there was a ton of consumer sentiment and buying power. It's not like, yeah, I, I don't think there's any guilt to be had there other than on the party that was lying.
0: God, there's so many places, so many oh, yeah, different yeah. directions to to take this. Um, it, it as how it applies to to founders today. Talk to me about how founders today can navigate this. This it feels like the pendulum has swung uh, against tech, but there still is within tech outlets. Uh, you know, if you are if you are embryonic, if you are an infant company, there is the optimism for sure. You have these massive, you have these massive successes that we didn't have 10 years ago. Yeah, you had a social network 10 years ago. Today, you do have uh, an amazing electric car company. You do have a private company sending people to space um, that's you know coming from one person with Elon Musk. You do have these amazing, this backdrop of amazing stories. The sentiment is still Slightly negative, or at least consumers want uh, to read. I feel like want to read, you know, where a company is has fucked up, or where this cool brand isn't so cool. There is that. There is that consumer sentiment and that consumer demand. But if you are uh, if you are a brand new company starting out, how how would you navigate this world? And and let's take let's just make up a a, a company and and say it's a it's a Consumer app for you know better podcasts and and they're trying to navigate this and you're the founder you're sitting down and you you just raised a little bit of capital or you have some product traction how should you think about PR and and the first question I'm going to start with is should you hire a should you hire a PR person like yourself obviously might you should be biased I guess but you just raised let's say 150 grand for your better podcasting application, how should you start thinking about PR for your company?
1: So if you raised 150 grand, you probably shouldn't do PR. PR should start when you have a, a million or two in the bank, and you should understand why you're doing it. So assuming that this this better podcasting software raised 150 grand, it'd be like, this is super cool. Regardless of your position, you should be thinking, what do I want to get from PR? PR is not great sometimes at getting users. What you want PR to do is operate as a force multiplier of everything else. So, this better podcasting solution, it does X, Y, and Z. I don't know. It does native cloud storage and literally describing Zencaster, aren't I? Uh, it, does, it does these things. That it does like an AI transcription thing. I don't think anyone does that. And it does these specific things that make it unique and it's super cheap. It's like, a dollar a month i don't know theoretical company that's one where i'm gonna take this and run with it if you've raised a bit of money the money is probably irrelevant you want to get in front of some people that really write about podcasting so in this particular scenario brian heater at TechCrunch. he does numerous posts around podcasting you probably want to try and get in front of him how might you do that well maybe you have a mate who knows brian Maybe you just read what Brian writes for several weeks and then shoot him an email, follow him on Twitter, maybe you DM him, but when you DM him or any reporter, first of all, check if they say no DMs in their, in their Twitter handle or their Twitter profile, but if they don't, send them a very short, like 50-word thing saying, I have a new podcast thing. I know you've written about this a time before. What do you think about having a chat about it or trying it out? So... In this very specific scenario, Brian does not have open DMs. So if he follows you back, you'd have to do that. Or you'd have to email him. That email should be very short. What the goal here is, is to have an honest conversation with someone who is interested in a thing you would be hawking. The thing is with this is when you add layers of complexity to a product, it becomes more increasingly hard to find the right reporter or find the right reporter for a particular angle on a particular product. So if, for example, you have a DevOps product and you have nine different clients in nine different industries, a separate pitch for each of those industries may or may not matter. For example, if it's in education, education publications don't tend to write about infrastructure, so you'd probably be out of luck there. But I don't know, in construction, construction dive will occasionally go into, into infrastructure. The long and the short of what I'm saying is you usually want to prepare what you're going to say by informing yourself. If you hire a firm, ostensibly that firm should already be prepared or be able to quickly prepare themselves to take on a new subject. So, for example, if I took on a new client and I didn't know the industry, first of all, I'd be asking myself, why to take this on? Second of all, if I had a good reason, I would learn it very quickly, which would be hours of reading. What you are trying to do, if your goal is more users, don't do PR. If your goal is to amplify your ads by drawing people towards articles from PR, good idea. If you're trying to improve your SEO by getting articles, PR is great for that. If you want to, honest to God, do a bunch of hot takes and get them pitched to places that take op-eds like TechCrunch or Entrepreneur or uh, the Next Web, PR can do that. What PR cannot do is control people. PR cannot guarantee you anything. PR cannot, like literally agencies cannot guarantee you anything if they can. They're probably breaking some sort of law. But they can't get you on TV every week. They can't even get you on TV every month, depending on who you are. TV's tough. If you have unrealistic expectations, you will be met with disappointment. But what PR can do is leave a lasting paper trail of how good you are or what you pardon me. Or what you think. Pardon me just choking on my own breath there, pardon me. No, and every every episode has a
0: uh, has a crazy drink uh, in it. On on my side, I heard you crack open a can uh, right before we started. What are you What are you drinking? A over Frosty there? diet coke because that's Take all a I I'm I need to. I need to. Uh, working for the last forty five minutes of answering these questions, and I'm drinking. Um, you know, another good example that my crazy drink for this episode is Liquid Death Mountain Water, which. Um I don't know if you've come across it but it is a insane now I don't mean like insane like this is you got to check out this pro- but I mean an insane brand. I'm full disclosure an investor and love this uh company but it is a it is a straight up insane brand. Have you come across it at all? Well, Liquid Death?
1: Yes. I actually think it's a wonderful company. I think that their messaging on the side about murdering your thirst is a little much, but I do like the idea I'm gonna I'm gonna read this out for people Yes, uh, go go right
0: to, ahead. It's it's but, bonkers. Is our proprietary thirst murdering and there's a reason, listeners, why I'm reading this out. Our proprietary thirst murdering process begins with liquid death forming a rope of veins that will wrap around your thirst head and strangle it. Once liquid death reaches your thirst brain, all of your thirst memories will be replaced with repeating loops of its own head imploding, which is exactly what happens next by causing your thirst head to implode <laughs> and its brain to squirt out of its ears, we're going to get to that different brand differentiation <laughs> as a topic in a second. But um, the yeah, take a sip um, when you when you're talking about what PR is good for. I've found that it's great for recruiting. It's great for you know specific narrow you know interest based. The demographic, like it's uh, a
1: morale too, like it, especially when you are in something quite niche, and you can get like a tech crunch, like most, mo, like a lot of people know what tech crunch is. So being in that is notable. But of course, if you get in a New York Times or a Forbes, your parents might not; they might know what that is, and that is meaningful. And these things are small
0: joys. Exactly, the engineering team, the the entire team that built x or y getting into uh you know seeing their that product launch and and seeing it in ink is yeah it's hard to overstate how important that is for morale but i totally hear you on on users it's it's really tough on d2c pro- products it can be good for consumers uh and, and customers buying it but it's impossible to know especially you know with consumer
1: applications it's really hard to know did this convert from that mm-hmm. pr and one thing I will say, though, is it can lead to traffic, but it needs to be a very clean sales funnel. So work with a company called Wise, a $20 video camera or Wi-Fi camera was what they started with. They have a number of different smart home things. Don't work with them anymore. Took it internal, lovely people. And with them, PR did result in sales. That's because the certain places they were were perfect for it, like CNET or KTLA-TV. And those things, that's because there are places which do lead to sales. But it is impossible to say, like you were saying, how many or indeed whether this definitely came from that article because sometimes people read something and then buy it three hours later or three days later. What are some of the ways? And and
0: we could even um, talk about it with, with something, whether it's the better podcasting application, you touched on the, the differentiation. I mean, you actually spent... Few seconds, just trying to hy- hypothetically come up with a differentiation. Um, how how would you construct that email, and are, would you write this at you know at 150 grand in funding? Is that the right timing to start cold outreach to to reporters, or were you saying a few sec- a few minutes ago that you should really wait until you have uh, a PR firm on on board?
1: It's less around whether or not you have enough money or whether you have a PR firm. It's more around whether it's the right time. Are you ready to take on a bunch of users? Do you want to take on a bunch of users? Do you need to create, I was just talking with a company in the fintech space, and their big thing they want from PR is they want to build trust because it's less around driving a bunch of users and more when a user goes looking up them, does the user find reliable people talking well about them or do they find nothing, which for fintech is death. In this better podcasting scenario, you probably, with any product like that, want a groundswell of users, and you want enough of a load test to make sure it works. Podcasting and a recording thing, for example, and this is where knowing an industry comes in, is fraught with connection problems. It's fraught with technical problems. If you run into those more than the average, you should not be in front of people yet. But if you run into them about the same amount or they are forgivable for some reason because the rest of the product is so good, then a lot can be forgiven. Zoom is a great example of a product that got a ton of stuff forgiven because it did its core job very well. Now, Zoom, not comparable to a lot of people listening because they were pretty big by the time that a lot of people wrote about them. But your average startup needs the groundswell of users or They need to be such a sexy big story or they just raised a lot of money and you can use that money as kind of the firewood to get some press which is good for partners, makes your partnership, your channel partners very happy, it makes them, they want to feel good by association, it may help with sales, it might help with future fundraising. There are numerous ways in which you can view PR. But the stupidest and the one reason to never do PR is because you think you have to. If you ever are just like, I'm being told I should do PR without an endearing reason to do so, you're probably going to be disappointed. Then again, you might not be. It's always worth having the conversation with an agency or an internal person. But I would argue that for the most part, unless you have a direct reason this is going to help, it's probably not worth it. But stage, you don't do it too early. Have enough money in the bank so that the PR firm is not a cost you're constantly staring at. Not because you should let them do nothing for months, but because in many cases, PR takes a month or two to percolate. And you'll know whether it's working about two or three months in. But ultimately, you want to make sure that it's the right choice and you have enough you have enough money, frankly, for it to fail. Not that it does a lot, but it's just... I have so many questions, so I'm going to rapid sure. fire. No, please, okay, please. How,
0: how often would you say it, it just falls flat? And and you've seen it in your career where it just it doesn't work for a company. 20% of the time... You
1: need to define what doesn't work is. Well, within four months, they say, hey, it's not working. Um, oh, that happens. It, that happens for a number of reasons. Well, is the thing, it's not working, because... For example, it's about 30% of the time if it's it's not working. But it's not working can mean incredible expectations. Mm-hmm, I right. mean, I previously had a client. I,
0: I totally, it could it could be as silly as this company. We're a new,
1: you know, online file sharing service and gets all this press. We haven't, we haven't seen these results. Oh, God. And just a message. I don't care if you hire me or you don't. If you hire any PR agency, please do not. Find an article that has three people in it or one client in it that you look kind of like and send it to your agency and say, why weren't we in this? In every single one of the cases that you find an article, which is a industry summary, and you are not mentioned, the reason you have not been mentioned is because the reporter had a few people in mind already and didn't really research it. It's not a fault of theirs. They found enough to make a trend and they posted it. It is not your agency's fault. Please stop doing this. It's very tough on the agency. I have very little ease on them. But getting back to the wider point, the expectations thing is very important because I'd say 30% of the time that happens. Because a lot of, I'm always month to month with my clients. So there are times when they're just like, this isn't doing enough. We tried, it didn't do, it, it did well, but it did not, like we need to choose where to put this money and this money could go to an engineer or direct marketing. And that's fine. I actually like that. I want clients to always be happy or not work with us. But in in some cases, and I had one client that I'm not going to be specific with the industry of, who I actually ended up letting go because despite getting them in Forbes and the next web and a bunch of other places, the course of course, the three months, including COVID starting, they were never happy and they were always asking for more. And that, I believe, was not their fault. It was a shared fault. It was, I should have set up expectations and I should have kept drumming them in. Because it is an important relationship to have where you're like, this is what I expect. And do not shift the goalposts without discussing. Unless you don't know you're shifting them, then that's fine. But I think that most PR relationships fail because of expectations. And the expectation of, if I get in runs, it's going to change my life is a very common one. Right almost layers of
0: expectations.
1: Oh of yeah. Just a and cultural
0: the amplification of every goal that they have internally with the company being the second layer of, of, of the expectations. What are the, well, actually I want to finish with the better podcasting application. When they write that email to Ryan at, at TechCrunch or, or Brian Heater, I, Brian Heater. Like what does that short email look like? Like specifically, one of the things that, that, uh, listeners always ask for is, uh, is, they're like, can you get even more specific on X, Y, or Z? So what specifically would that email look like? And how many emails should that founder uh, cold email out when they are ready? They've checked every other box. They're ready for it. They can handle it. Now it's time to to be their own PR person.
1: So the email should be 120 words max. You do not need to ever say how important your industry is. You do not need to say that you are revolutionary. Any any words that can be evaluated objectively, other than like awesome or good, like and even awesome is kind of taking the piss. But you know what? If something is really objectively awesome, if this better podcasting app comes with, I don't know, it, it's so ridiculously cheap and so ridiculously good, you can just compare it to other things. Make things when you when you say something is better than the next, don't just say it's better. Say how, and say it simply and quickly. And follow up at the most twice over the course of a week and a half, maybe two weeks. And if you haven't heard back on the third one, oh sorry, the second one, so that'd be your third email, you're done. Just give up.
0: And how many people should that founder reach out to in cold
1: cold email or DM on Twitter? Um hmm. well, I should be clear. Go easy on the DMs with Twitter. Try and get warm intros from investors or friends. But with those emails, it depends. If you think you have a good story and you can write a unique email and it should be unique every time, maybe keep the structure the same, but make it unique and read these people as many times as you want. But each time you do it requires a level of research and a level of empathy with their situation that is difficult and time consuming, which is why people hire agencies. Be careful when you're sending the email. A lot of TV stations, a lot of people wake up two or three in the morning. You want to hit the email to send then. If you have something you want to get, you want to make it easy for them so if it's a product that they can try and they need a code to use it, have the code in there. And if you want them to write it up and in that image, have a Dropbox with pictures in it. Screenshots. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. You just want to make it so that they read that email and they can make a quick judgment call over, over whether this is your this is enough time. Like this is worth their time, I should say.
0: What are some cardinal sins for that, that founder in that spot with the company? How can they, for lack of a better phrase, just how can they screw it up with the 17 reporters that they're reaching out to with these individual emails?
1: Constantly, constantly, constantly bothering them. That's a really bad thing. That's why I say wait two days before you email again and make it short. And if they don't like it or they don't respond, do not take it personally. Do not go on their Facebook and attack them. Do not say, why did you cover this and not me? In many of these cases, it gets back to, uh, he's just not that into you. I forget who wrote it. But the core thing there is it's not nothing personal. It's their judgment call, and it's their right to do what they want as an autonomous human being. That And also, even if you get given their phone number, do not call them. Do not text them unless you are told to by them. Do not call people. Don't do it. Stop doing it. They hate it. I don't that care. Would, if that, that would blow my mind if someone uh, had the, the the goal to call. They do that though. PR firms, they call reporters on the telephone. It's so- oh, well, I can see maybe for the PR firm, but for the founder. Well, PR firms shouldn't do it either. If you find your PR firm is spamming people, so if you send the same email to 300 people or even 10 people and you spam it out, fire them. If they call reporters, fire them. For every one case where the reporter actually does a story because of a call, there are a hundred more where they despise you for it. It is an invasion. What back
0: to the expectations, and and by the way, it, it, the thought that comes to mind if if seventeen reporters don't write about it. There's a great episode in the podcast uh, from uh, from a marketer that that is all about creating a category and and creating the positioning of your company Um, creating the brand starts with the positioning and creating a category that automatically puts you, you know, in a brand new light, like, you know, instead of a new cell phone, it's the smartphone is a smartphone. And that is a whole episode around positioning that helps you with every investor conversation, PR conversation, um, recruiting conversation. But if you don't get any response from 17, 17 journalists how should what should and when you are pitching a company and you don't get that the response that you
1: want to see what are your next thoughts so i start drinking no um (laughs) generally then it comes back to it's not you it's me if 17 people have ignored you entirely it might be your subject headline keep it short keep it direct it might be your email. It might be boring. It might be the wrong time. There are times where companies that launch try and launch years and years before their time get very frustrated when six years later a company gets worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Shit happens. It sucks. For the most part, if 17 people just cold ignore you, it's time to lean on your network and say, hey, uh, anyone know anyone from here? Or anyone know someone they can introduce me to? Because for the most part, journalists with a warm introduction, well, they're not going to do your job for you. But if they're like, this is cool, I'll pass it along. Generally, they will. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If you're going zero for 17, it is probably that what you are writing isn't easy to grok, or it's boring, or it's both. And that's really, it, it is that simple. And when that happens to me, what I usually do is I will go to the client. I'll be honest. I won't tell them, I'm a big loser and I failed, but I'll say, this isn't resonating. What do you think? What do you think I'm doing? What do you think of this? And in fact, I had one the other day, a company that does a, a spatial AI camera. And I used that phrase because it's the one they gave me. Because I came back to them and a the TechCrunch reporter had said, isn't this just the Raspberry Pi thing? And it wasn't. And it wasn't anything I said in my email, but I shared my email. I was like, I don't, I don't get this. They came back to me with a really clean thing being like ah, you could probably say this and it worked then what like three reporters it's not sometimes even i do this all the time five days a week i'm on this all the time and i'm pretty good at it and you know what sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes it's a case of me sending it to a colleague or a mate one time i have a mate who's like a, a, a fairly popular act actor and I like, I've sent him shit, being like, well, what's boring about this? What's exciting? And you know what? Getting that outside perspective is useful. And if you really want to get to one reporter and you know it's good for them, find an introduction. Hell, if you're listening to this and I can help, I'll, I'll try and get an introduction. If it's someone I know well enough, I'll absolutely introduce you. It, I, I like double opt-in, by the way. I love double opt-in introductions. I ask both and then I intro. Works every time. But for the most part, it's it's a case of if something isn't working, there's a reason it isn't working. And it's usually much simpler than you think. It may even be the time of day you're sending it. If you're sending things to New York at like 2 p.m. PST, it's five there. If you're sending them at nine in the morning on a Monday, they're just getting into the office. Like these little things, these little considerations are so important. Yeah, well and it's just putting yourself in their shoes.
0: Uh, and also making it the making
1: yours the easiest thing to read.
0: Right. I have cert- I have made the the cardinal sin of long ass emails trying to exhaust dismantle every potential argument or like critique uh, in the email and then I look back and I'm like holy shit I sent that was four paragraphs. It's uh it yeah it's it's just it's how I react when I see an email of four paragraphs. I'm just like, oh shit!
1: Yeah, no, you're just like, I'm not going to read this. Right. Your brain's natural reaction is to go, Nah, man. I, I I'll do it. Like, just I don't right, know. I'll do it later. Right. Right. What they, later the, is never.
0: I want to get back to expectations setting, um, but I, I also want to touch on just within COVID. How's COVID changed things for for founders for PR firms? Um, How has it changed things for you all? And for the founder that is thinking about blasting out 17 cold emails, has it
1: changed for, for that person as well? It has been a hard adjustment for people who are not super online. If you were heavily reliant in any industry, but especially PR and especially I can imagine founders trying to do their own PR, if you were heavily reliant on being at the right place physically at the right time for obvious reasons, that's not possible. A lot of the meat space reliance is hard on everyone. If you are extremely online, like my good self, it is a bit easier or it's exactly the same. I have always been remote. I've always liked doing that myself just because I hate offices and whatever. I run my company. But for the most part, you can get a hell of a lot done over email. I haven't cold called a reporter since 2014. I have called a reporter, I think, once, and it's because he said, can you give me a ring real quick? A fairly notable reporter with a name that I hope you didn't just hear always calls me versus reading the pitch. Because that's just the way he does things. You should always wait for them to come for you. But for the most part, it has meant that there are people, good and bad, who are reliant heavily on being at the right parties. And that no longer matters and probably will never matter again, or at least nowhere near as prominently. And when
0: you say online for for this founder how how should she he think about this phrase being online
1: and how does that help with i don't mean like i'm not talking about myself but i am when i say like online all the time looking at twitter all the time you should be more active on twitter and following reporters and reading what they do you should have been doing that before covid now it's critically important you do It's also a time when you need to be very aware of being crass around money and around access and around health. And it's never been a better time when you're writing something to not try and be funny. I always try and counsel my clients, never make jokes. I'm like, why i am funny? I'm like, "Ah, that's a problem. That's always going to be a problem because no one who has ever said I'm funny is actually funny. Unless you're being like me when I'm like, I'm funny, but in the weird way. But in all seriousness, now is the time to just get straight to business and also understand that what you might be selling what, it might be the worst time. If you're selling a luxury good right now, good luck. People don't have any money. People aren't working. If it's a business product and it fits into this new hyper remote world, don't say COVID has been a good thing. Very basic, empathetic things you might forget. But conversely, also don't push the COVID thing a lot. If you are doing something that's clearly helpful in COVID and you say it's remote, it's remote focused and really good for remote workers, they're going to make the connection as to why that is. But the big change has been in coverage has been people are there. The cynicism is ripe as in people are a little bit worried about coming off as too happy at the moment. Because it's a very sad and depressing time. I don't think it's as bad as it was in March. In March and April, journalists were like not happy. Like I mean, no one's happy, but you, they were not as into the idea of writing just stories about things because this new normal was so brutal. It still is brutal, but it is also it, it, it's at least being managed well. It whether it's being managed well is a thing for another time. But for now, if anything you do involves being in person, you had best find a contingency for not being in person.
0: One of our one of our uh, previous conversations, you mentioned the importance of personality. Yes. What do you mean by that? Do you mind articulating the point, the larger point for listeners? And and I it, it obviously has has the uh, implications for your your online presence. So. I have kind of a
1: broken brain. So what I find funny is funny to me, and actually a growing cadre of other people with similar, similar mental um, states, that's the way I'd put it. It's, But really, pers- now is the time where your online personality or that lack thereof will come out. This does not mean you need to go and become a zany, crazy person. But if your personality is mostly around drinking wine and talking about doggos, welcome to the party. No one cares. You are now as boring as anyone else. In particular now, actually, something I keep seeing is, wow, do people think they, like, people want to, people don't want to hear about your politics. Unless your politics is fairly straightforward as, like, I don't know, like, Black Lives Matter, that's a good political opinion to have. If you have a, uh, a an extremely long-winded rant about how epidemiologists are idiots and Uh, you shouldn't wear a mask, and it's all propaganda, maybe keep that one to yourself. For the most part, though, it's very hard to become interesting, but it's quite easy to not be boring. You can't gain a huge online following overnight, but you can read more, consume more, do things, talk about things you like doing. You don't have to be crazy, and if you need to... stand, And you mean this for the founder of at better
0: podcasting app or
1: okay that's a really good one you know what if you're doing your public perception here not just being yourself here's a great thing to do in the podcast industry boost like signal boost people in your industry doing cool shit like that's one that's a cool one talk about the technology behind your thing i mean literally just tweet about some things you're messing with i love one founder
0: that i that i always reflect on how positively he shares other competi- just competitors' good news to boost the signal for the whole space, it's, well, one, it's it's extremely admirable. And two, he, then he becomes the only founder that's willing to do that and one of the best experts in the space. I, I think about uh, this founder all the time because I'm, I'm well, his, his name's Sam Sawyer. He's in the real estate uh, property tech game, and he just shares things about the broader market. And, and it's a it's a world that I don't know too much about, real estate tech, but he's kind of the lightning rod to share any and all things. And he just happens to be building a product within it. But he's happy to share any any competitors. When he worked at another company that I'm an investor in, that's when I first started to, to follow his Twitter account. He would just share competitor uh, press
1: all the time, pushing the, the whole sector forward. See, and that one's great because that's natural. That bloke sounds like he genuinely loves his industry and he's super into it. And he enjoys doing what he does, but he enjoys seeing the things around it. Another one I really love is Sahel Doshi. I think that's how you say his second name. Founder of Panel, now working on a company called Mighty. I don't work with him. I have no financial relationship or even, don't even think he knows who I am. But I love reading his stuff because like, he is, at his heart, a coder. He loves developing. And he's constantly talking about the very niche things he does, and then the wider things he sees from managing. And it's really interesting and different. And people follow him and talk to him because he's interesting and shares the things he finds interesting, and he genuinely likes them. I think ultimately the reason people love reading people who love what they're doing, if there is substance. Hunter Walk, another great example of someone very positive bloke. But talks about things he's doing. Uh, there's um, there's a product guy at Dropbox who's constantly posting his garden. I really need to find that bloke's name. But these things, you should never do these things as a kind of malevolent, manipulative strategy to get people to like you. Sure, the side note is yeah, I want a following, I want people to know who I am and I want people to care. Sure, everyone is like that. A person with no social media account is like that. But... If you mostly just post the things that you find interesting and you really care about them, you're going to get some following. Yeah, if you are slightly more clever and weird about it, you will grow a larger following. Or maybe you'll just have people you follow who are bigger, who retweet you. And I am very Twitter-focused, I should add. And they they will get on top of that too. And there are many different, really fascinating people on Twitter in and outside of tech So getting back to your podcast example, for example, that person should follow everyone in the technical podcast space. They should follow everyone outside of it who's nascently related. Maybe they should follow people in music tech. Maybe they should talk to these people, boost those people, have a conversation with those people. These things may not feel natural at first, but they are mostly just doing more of what you were already doing. And if it's natural, you will grow. And right now, is the best time to do it because that's all there is. You're not getting any networking events. You're not going to see anyone at the pub. You're not going to go drinking at Eureka at Hawthorne Airport and hopefully hearing what the guys from SpaceX are talking about. You're not going to get any of that done. I don't know why I chose that one, but that's like an example of like a thing you might do if you're an investigative reporter or even just interested in rockets. Like what you are doing, if you're honest and you share it, will eventually get there if you follow with and interact the right with the right people.
0: And and I think you touched on it's um you know, you said it's it would have been better if you had this happening before COVID. But if you're the founder that has been largely private or didn't think about uh an online profile very much as as an asset, one it is only growing. It's not like it even when it moves from Twitter to hypno Twitter it is, it's, you're going to be able to take that, everything you've learned with you as well as the network with you, um, at least in part. And it is, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, the second best time today type of thing where you can start today. And it really can be, like you said, it could be sharing about your garden. It could be sharing about your Corona hobby that you've taken on during this, uh, during the shelter in place or during the, the remote work. It can be Really anything, but also even easier is just the, the Zig Ziglar quote of, um, you'll get what you want if you give others everything that they want. And find the people that are writing about your industry
1: and start to, man, there's. And, there's- and actually, I'm going to cut over you because you just reminded me of something from Suhail, where I used to, I worked for Mixpanel as he left. So I am familiar with what he used to do. I'm going to give an example. I hope he hears this. Hell, so hello. But one thing he does is he's very useful because he reads a lot of stuff and he knows a lot of stuff and he has. A, so, guess what? When a reporter's like, ah, oh, is there any like engineering focused person who gets crypto? They call him. In, in my case, I'm a PR person, but I'm fairly well read up on tech, fairly well read up on companies like general Fortune 500 bullshit. I get calls because people go, Ed, can you give a quick analysis of this? Because it's more substantive than, that was bad. That was good. They should post on social media. In, For example, I was called about the United a few years ago when the United, uh, when Chicago, I think it was, the guy got brutally beaten. I specifically was called upon to literally like, what should they do next? And they did not do it. But that's why I got quoted, like CNN, I think it was. And it wasn't, that did nothing for my business. It helped a reporter, though. And People followed me from it. People talked to me about it. And it's like, not everything has to be fully transactional. Sometimes helping someone is genuinely an improvement to both of your lives. It makes you feel good, and it's good for them. Everyone's happy. And eventually, it may help you down the road. Maybe it won't. But reporters are doing a job. Everyone's doing a job. Everyone's working through this crazy world. And if you can help them out a bit from the thing that you're interested in, that's magic. Right,
0: and everyone loves press. And and in 2020, you you can write a few characters down publicly to uh, to extol some piece or some author's uh, viewpoint. That's going to it's going to give them what you're ultimately going for, as well as is them to to praise something you're building. And if you take the the long view of a year out, just absolutely no expectations for a year when it comes to building an online uh, persona of sorts. It's Forget about any results whatsoever for a year, similar to just uh, expectation setting, which I do want to touch back on. Just do not have any expectations. Follow the other leaders in your space. Start amplifying the the things that they're trying to put out there themselves, and they're going to want to return the favor twelve months down the road when you've amplified everything that they've written. The and shit, you're just doing a good thing for your your wider community within your within that side of the. The world you work in, like my buddy Sam, um, or I, you know, I say friend. It's just he's a guy online, but case in point, he's a guy online. Then now I say my buddy because I know what he thinks about different things within real estate tech. It's um, he's not the founder of a unicorn. He's just someone that has built a strong reputation of sharing really cool insights within a, a specific space. Well, getting back to expectations and working with, let's say, you as a firm, what are what are healthy expectations for? Let's say that that uh, the Better Podcasting app is at the stage where they bring you on. What are the actual expectations that they should have in their mind? The, and we already listed what PR is good for, what it isn't. But when it comes to coming into it thinking, wow, we're going to get pieces in. I can't wait to put a Forbes article, a logo on our, on our website, a TechCrunch article or logo on our on our homepage. What should the, the proper expectations be?
1: So you should expect the first month is quiet. However, if a firm ever tells you you need three months of prep, you don't need to hire them. It nothing takes that long, other than you actually building a product. But realistically, you should hit by month three at least one like tier one type TechCrunch Forbes, Fortune Business Insider level piece. If you can't get there in that time, that is worrying. Now, however, you could be like a deep development startup, like a DevOps type startup. And you might just want, and again, this is where expectation's saying, you may just want developer community type type stuff. You may want Fierce Developer, you may want DevOps.com. You may want the new stack. And then build up to like ZDNet, which is like wonderful for that kind of stuff. It's an understanding of what is realistic based on hopefully either your firm's guidance or your own knowledge. And it may take longer than three months, but you need to understand, you need to have those expectations in advance. And and what type of halo comes with that? Of let's say you get that
0: the Forbes piece. What should be going through the founder's mind in terms of the the the, the brand halo or the the fruits of that type of
1: article? So, for example, there was a financial product to work with about four months ago. I worked with their ads guy to get articles that he could then use in Facebook advertising because it's much easier to convert a user if they go through an article than it is to go through just a blunt ad or, I don't know, like a Twitter post, what have you. So that was an understanding of how that cookie crumbles. That founder knew TechCrunch isn't going to send a bunch of users. Like they just knew that. Now, some people, if you are selling a product that you go on a page and click buy, then yeah, honestly, you may just get like traffic from TechCrunch. You may, but how many sales would that be? No one has that answer. Also, it changes a lot. And those expectations you have, if I'm not talking about any specific client, but I've had clients previously who expected TV every month. And I will tell you that is impossible unless you are a senator. It just even the most popular tech person, Alexis Ohanian, I think maybe he has done TV once once a month for the last like year or two. And that's because he's him and it took him years, years and years and years and years.
0: And talk about uh, building a, a personality. Yeah, he he have been building and investing in the the online. He's personality such a pain
1: book. in the ass. He's tall. He's handsome, charming. God, I hate him. So- no, I don't. Nice. No, just mm-hmm. to meet him, you're like, ah, I got nothing to hang my hat on here. It's going to have to be bitter and angry at home with my terrible posture. But no, in all seriousness, most
0: also he has a
1: list of of journalists that
0: he is touching base with. He
1: spent like a decade building. He is, I've worked with him before and he's brilliant, but he's not unstructured. He knows these people because of years of building it. And he also built Reddit. Like he's not like no overnight success is actually overnight. And even him at the top of his game is maybe once once a month, maybe a few times a month, but that is someone at the top of their game. And he is like the tech person. Also very quick to get on the remote train. He was like ready for that shit. He was ready, and also they're going it, especially. But I choose the TV one out of a degree of bitterness because it's happened. It has happened before, and it's like. founders want that one so bad, but also TV doesn't do that much. Mm. Like it really, it really doesn't. And I hate to say it, like mm. TV makes you feel so good. It makes investors very impressed. It doesn't center unless you get a product on Good Morning America or the Today Show. It doesn't do that much. Actually, KTLA, I take it back, again a product. And it came with a web story. That's the thing. But if you know what things do, have the expectations. But know that TV is so difficult. You got me on TV a handful of times. And it was and it was a different flipping time. It <laughs> was
0: a different time, but it also had no no real a bump in, in and made you feel good though. Yeah, I guess it was it was um, out of curiosity, it was interesting. But now I have absolutely no no interest in that. Uh, I want to go side. on TV to like send
1: it to my brother. Just be like, ha <laughs> just messing with him. But in all, in all seriousness, though, that's a fair way of looking at it. But expecting how easy it is to get something is uh, understanding that is un- it's unfair on yourself and the agency or you're, if you're just pitching it yourself or your in-house person. For the most part, you have to remember that None of this is guaranteed. And there are times where there are just, there were quite a few times where I've got a TV story and been like, there is no way this is going to work. And it worked. And a hundred more were being like, this will work. And it did not. Just because TV moves so quickly, everyone's on different time zones. There's like 25 producers total who actually read pitches. And they all, because everyone wants to be on TV, they get way more pitches than everyone else. But also, like, understanding your importance in the world and this even if you don't have an agency this is critical what is what is the what is the price
0: for to get uh, back to you know specifics for founders what
1: is the what is the price range of working with a pr firm anywhere between eight and 25 grand a month if you want anything before series d you do not need a big firm i do not mean this just referring to myself as a small firm, five person firm but you don't need an Edelman or a Weber Shamwick or a WagEd or any of those. And if you guys have are listening to this, and you have a problem with it? Kiss my ass. You know my email already. What what is the what is the benefit of having a big firm? If you are a huge company, you definitely need that level of support. You need someone on twenty four seven. You need someone doing dedicated to media monitoring because there's so much coming out of you, and you're not so much planting trees anymore. You're planting forests. You're doing a lot. And it's not just a case of one or two articles a month. It's dealing with knowing you will get 25 and wanting 50. It is much broader strokes. For the most part, that does not apply to anyone before Series D. And even then, it, you'd be remarkably surprised what one person, let alone five people, can do. It's. I think the big agencies are for the birds, and they are all trying to move into managed services anyway. But for the most part, startups should not like if you are being charged two to 5K, and I realize I think you paid me 5K a month, but this was back in 2012. I remember you're 5500 actually. actually. Um, for <laughs> the most part, if someone costs in that range, they're too cheap you should worry about it. Anyone over 15 who's just one person, you should worry about. For the most part, PR these days costs between 10 and 12 grand a month. And should, should
0: you think about it in terms of, all right, we're about to launch, let's get it for two months? Should you think about it in terms of a longer time frame? I have my own views on this, but what are yours? It's
1: interesting because it can go either way. If you are doing something long-term, you should have a long view, but you should have short-term and long-term expectations. If you know there's not going to be anything for three months, you should make sure there's enough shit to do in that three months. If you have things you really want, you should be upfront and say you want them and have a honest discussion about how you get from a to b because there's usually an answer but for the most part i I, i've been month to month with most most of my clients for years but occasionally i'll do three months because they want to and it's just it's a comfort thing i don't know why but they do but usually you want things to you want things to be fairly clear and spelled out for the first month or two And then things get a bit more freeform jazz because no company is going to have six months out at a startup stage. And if they do, you should be plugged into that roadmap. One
0: last topic that I want to get to, um, and then I'll let you get back to much more uh, lucrative work than the time you're spending with me. Thank you. This is Uh, worth
1: worth every moment.
0: What is, how should a, a company think about crisis management? Um, let's say it is my own side project, uh, this this little um, matcha energy shot, Magic Mind, and something goes super wrong. Let's say it just blows up in someone's hand or something, and it's this massive uh, crisis. Or you you mentioned the United flight issue. Let's start with just my example: the energy shot just blows up in someone's hand. What and and reporters are reaching out to to ask about it. If we have if i've got any statements how should i think about that this unexpected crazy crisis when i don't have a
1: pr firm and uh, and really anyone to to help me think through this so the basics of crisis comes and this could be an entire other podcast but i can make it really simple what you want to do immediately is if you don't know what's going on in full 100 percent, including how it happened you say We have heard about this situation. We are still finding out everything that happened. When we know, we will get back to you. Nothing more to add at this time. And keep saying nothing more to add at this time until they leave you alone. What you need to do, though, is actually do what I just said. You need to find out everything. And when you know, you need to get back to whoever you told it to. So in this explodey thingy, I don't know what it is, So a theoretical matcha heating cup that I assume stirs the matcha up, say the heating element in it, it was due to the fact that the person was in Arizona, they had it outside and it overheated. This is what you have found from a full investigation. You then say, and there are now ethical and your own things that you can choose or not choose to do here. But you should then go out with a statement and say, what happened was the following? Blam, 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 blam. You should also probably pay that person's medical fees. If you can afford to, you should. If it was 100% their fault, you should even think about doing so. You should say, so for example, if this person was like bashing it against the wall and it exploded and it took a finger off and they can't afford the $10,000 medical bill, pay that bill but then say they were literally smacking it against the wall. We really advise people don't do that. But we did it because we love our customers. That will be worth it. But assuming it was a mechanical fall in a very bizarre situation, you say it was due to the extreme heat of Arizona summer. It's 107 degrees out. It overheated, it exploded. Um, we've contributed to their medical fees. Or don't do that. If you choose not to, that's your call. But we did this. And then if you will make a mechanical change, To that if you were like okay we are changing the casing on this part so that in extreme heat it will not heat up that much or it will shut off you will then need to say that in a statement and if you don't know that yet you can say this is what happens we're working on a way to stop it happening again we're in touch with the user we'll fix it." then when you've made a substantive update you update again and you say we are now we have now changed the heating element so it automatically turns off if it goes above a certain heat. We are offering an exchange program with shipping both ways for each customer.
0: What do you mean by update? Everyone are you you have a blog post and you're also sending this out
1: an email to all customers, no. sending it, to, the Send it to well yes and no. You don't you don't need to reach out to the media again unless you are asked, but you do need to put it on your blog, you do need to put it prominently on your Twitter and you need to send it to all your customers. Be honest and direct. That is it. Any crisis, most crises that happen are made worse by an attempt to backpedal, rushing to comment, or not knowing what's going on and then doing all of the above. It's totally fine to say we do not know the whole situation yet. We are still evaluating. It is fine someone will say, well, you could have done more. Truth is, if you don't know the whole thing, it's irresponsible to respond. If there's like a data breach, you need to know everything and you can't announce anything because that, if it's a breach, there could be a hole for someone to go through. You've got to be careful. And do you do this from your personal Twitter,
0: especially if you've already built out a personal...
1: Another key thing is centralization. There is one person and there is one place. Well one place where everything goes through. So your Twitter account, your blog, your blog on your company blog, and one person in the company is the person who approves every final statement and issues said statement. By centralizing the authority, you vastly, vastly reduce the amount of
0: problems. And what if you've built this personal brand online where you're always commenting on everything within the industry and you're just a dark, silent character throughout you know the the main character of of a bad movie
1: then you have done that and that is significantly better than carelessly posting during a big crisis you're not like it's a crisis no one is expecting things to be good no one is like oh yeah this is cool like no one's like that
0: what are some of the um what are some more of the missteps that you can easily rationalize uh, to yourself to do, but is a, a major mistake you mentioned. Re- replying too quickly, backpedaling replying or- Replying ch-
1: to everyone, assuming you can reply to everyone is a classic. That one's one of my favorites. It's like, I will respond to everyone. You can't do it. It's assuming that you were always in the right. It's assuming what happened is exactly what happened. It's not responding quickly enough in some cases. Like if it's or not responding declaratively, uh, if it's an act of racism, like if someone says a slur and is horribly racist, then not responding to that is extremely bad. Sometimes silence is worse than a statement. In the event that someone has killed someone, there is a lot of nuance to this, but usually the problem is rushing, just rushing and rushing and rushing. It's ridiculous. And people, people love to post, I love to post, but there are times to not post, there are times to take a beat.
0: Yeah, well, it is, It is. this is a topic I never, it's awesome to hear you outline what to do in a crisis for especially the vast majority of founders that can't afford a firm to hear just, I've never really heard this discussed for uh, for founders to take in. So it is, it's, thank you for touching on that. My um, pleasure.
1: The last question for you is where can people find find you online, Ed? So it's very easy to find me. I am at, at Ed Zitron. That's E-D-Z-I-T-R-O-N on Twitter. I'll be emailed at ed at E-Z-P-R No hyphens or anything like that. And honestly, just ask James.
0: I've recommended you. I don't know how many companies I've recommended you to. Quite a few. It is a, uh, even with, with five people on your staff, it is, it was always, uh, like we we're dealing directly with you and every company that put you in touch with it's, um, it is, you know, my favorite way of describing you is always knows what's going on. And I can't, I can't tell you how many PR professionals I've worked with that really have no idea. I've probably worked with seven or eight in the last decade. And, um, the majority I've could not describe that way and you more than anyone else just always had the maybe it's because you obsess over twitter always had a finger on the pulse of whatever was going on and it's a um, it, it was always a pleasure working with you because it was never just context building over and over and over again so um it is thank you for doing this deep dive on pr for for all the founders out there that that might not be able to work directly with an agency like yours um, but hopefully got some, uh, some good bits of wisdom out of it.
1: So I thank you. So. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. Cheers.
0: Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below The Line.
1: Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up
0: Podcasts.